So you and your friends, you're hanging out on a Sunday afternoon, and the pastor calls you to see if you'd be willing to help a local businessman move all of his stuff into a new store. And you ask, well, when would he like that done? And and the pastor says, tomorrow morning, first thing, around 6 a.m. You know, I thought of you because I figured you could use the money. Oh, so this isn't volunteer work, you reply. I'm going to get paid. Yes, yes, he's willing to pay you $100 for the day. Great, I'm in, you reply. Every little bit helps. Times are tough. Just as you're about to end the call, you say, wait, 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 there are three others with me right now, and they could use an extra 100 bucks as well. Can they come? Absolutely, he says, if, if they can show up first thing in the morning. So sure enough, the next day, the the four of you show up promptly at 6 a.m. ready to go. You all work moving heavy boxes and filling the truck with furniture and 55-gallon drums and, and heavy wooden crates. The four of you then go to the new store. You unload it and you set it up in the new store with all these displays as you've been directed. You then go back uh, to the old place for the second load, and as you do, you find standing there three others uh, ready to help you load up the truck again. They want to be a part of this. And so it's around 11 a.m., sun starting to beat down on you, but you all work together to fill the truck again with a lighter stock of smaller boxes and smaller items. And then you go once more over to the new store and you unload everything and you restock the new store as directed. The job seems to be winding down. Good thing, because you're really starting to feel it in your back. The businessman says, oh, it's only, only one more load, and it really won't take you long. And so you go back to the old place, and then when you get there, to your surprise, uh, you return there with the truck. There are three new people standing there waiting to help you and, and to load up the truck and then go to the new store. It was just a small load at this point of odds and ends, and it only took 15 minutes to load up. Easy work. And then you're off again to complete the job of unloading, which really only took another 15 minutes. You think to yourself, why did these three even bother to show up? Well, when the day is done, the businessman thanks all the workers for doing such a great job moving his entire store in one day. He then, for everyone to see, he hands each of the workers, one by one, a brand new $100 bill. Even those who had helped for only 30 minutes. Now, if that, at that moment, your thoughts could flash up onto the screen for everyone to see, <laughs> what would we see? Oh, that's awfully nice of this businessman to give these latecomers 100 bucks. that it? Or would you think something like, uh, you know, I'm thankful for the church just to earn $100 today? Or would it be? I give up my entire day to work for this guy and all he ends up giving me is a measly 100 bucks? Would you think, how is it that these slackers work 30 minutes and get the same pay as me who worked hard all day? Is that what we would say? I mean, would you get in in the car with your friends and and complain all the way on, on your ride home? Why is it that it's more instinctive to grumble than to give thanks? Or suppose you're at the uh, waiting in the doctor's office 
And you've been waiting for quite a while. You booked the appointment six months ago. The receptionist then comes out and says, whoever just walked in here without any appointment, the doctor will see you now. Are you thinking, well, that's very nice of this doctor to help those who didn't make an appointment and just showed up and he's going to take care of them. That's so nice of him. Come on. Is that what you're thinking? Why is it that it's more instinctive to grumble than to give thanks? Now, some of you, if you're on top of your game this morning, you saw the passage maybe on the screen, you got, okay, I think I know where he's going this morning. It's commonly called the parable of the workers in the vineyard. I think it's misnamed. It should be called the parable of the generous landowner. And you can find it in your Bibles, if you're not there, to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. Now, I don't always give a Thanksgiving message uh, uh, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, but for one reason or another, uh, I, I felt compelled to do so this year. And so we're going to take a one-week break from our study in First Thessalonians. And I think one of the reasons that I felt compelled to do so, because have you noticed that decorations and stores go from Halloween to Christmas? Little attention given to this other holiday, this Thanksgiving, yet the Bible has a lot to say about it. All right, we're going to zero in on one passage, Matthew chapter 20. And so follow along with me as we're going to be looking at Matthew 20. It's one of many parables uh, that Jesus told to drive home a point. And the power of parables is that they, they, they do heart surgery without our knowing it. And that's so true of today's parable of Matthew chapter 20. Jesus tells us of a landowner who hired men to work in his vineyard. You see, our problem with this parable is not going to be in understanding it. Our problem with this parable will not be in some interpretive issues. Our problem with this parable is not even going to be the cultural differences of that day to our day or even relating to this story. You see, our problem with this parable is, our problem with this parable is, well, I'll give that to you in a moment. I want to work down, uh, uh, down this passage of Scripture. I want to make three observations and then provide some, some lessons for us. All right. Hope you're following along. First observation surrounds the employment of workers. And the observation is this. Some men in need were given the opportunity to work. Some men in need were given the opportunity to work. And that's in uh, verse 1 of Matthew chapter 20. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. Now Jesus here uses the setting of a typical day in the marketplace it was common in that day for men to gather at the local labor pool hoping to find work for the day. No work, no food for the family. So in the story, the landowner goes to the marketplace to hire a few good men. Men in need of work, the plot is rather conventional, nothing out of the ordinary here. The men hired at the beginning of the day, likely around 6 a.m., had to be thrilled to have found work. 
And verse 2 says, he, the landowner, agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into the vineyard. These men were chosen now among all the other workers to now go to work for this landowner. And the landowner agreed to pay these workers a denarius. Hold on to that. We're going to come back to that agreement later on. So the men punched in at 6 a.m. They went to work. Now about the third hour, verse 3 tells us, which is now 9 a.m., the landowner made another run to the job fair to hire some workers. Now, no contract, no agreement was made between these men hired at 9 a.m. and the landowner. For verse 4, the owner simply states, I will pay you whatever is right. No questions asked. No amount agreed upon. These 9 o'clock workers simply trusted the landowner. And off they went singing, I owe, I owe. It's off to work I go. That's why we work. We owe. One reason. Now, for one reason or another, the landowner makes two more trips to the marketplace. Sixth hour, then the ninth hour. Now, I think, and this is pure speculation, you can see if it sticks or not. I think the landowner made several runs to the marketplace to hire other workers, not because of lack of foresight, but because he knew they had a need. It seems to fit the gist of the story quite well. It seems in sync with the generous nature of the landowner. They had a need, and this generous landowner could meet that need. So he even goes to the marketplace one more time at the very end of the day. Verse 6 tells us it's the 11th hour that he found others standing around, and he hired them to work in his vineyard. It was the 11th hour, which would be one hour before quitting time. Now picture this. These guys who are hired at the 11th hour, picture this. These, these, are, these are family men. They show up at 6 a.m. looking for work. No one hires them at 6 a.m. Noon rolls around, still no work. It's starting to get late. It's 3 o'clock and then it's 4.45. Still nothing. They have resigned themselves to the fact that they were going to have to go back home, look their wife in the eyes and their hungry children in the face and say, sorry, family, no work today. And just as they're maybe rehearsing in their minds what they're going to say to their family, the generous landowner shows up and he hires them to work for one hour. Now, some of you know firsthand the feeling of landing a job after a period of time standing around hearing nothing. Now, these last men hired to work only one hour. They, too, did not know how much they would receive for that one hour. They didn't even ask. They're just glad to walk away that day with something in their hands to feed their families. So these workers, they punch in at 5 p.m. The 6 o'clock whistle blows. It's quitting time. And as was custom in that day, the workers would get paid at the end of the day. Now, this is where the story gets really interesting. And I really wish this is the very first time we're all reading this. But we come to the twist in the story. Everything seemed to be going along just fine until payroll time. You see, our problem with this parable, well, let me give you a second observation, and it concerns the equality of pay. 
the equality of pay. Here's the second observation. The landowner does something outlandish on payday. The landowner does something outlandish on payday. Follow along verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired, and going on to the first. Last hired, first paid. I mean, you can't pull stunts like this and expect to keep your employees happy. The landowner obviously had no idea how to run a business. The landowner apparently didn't pay attention at the last business seminar on motivation. Last hired, first paid. Jesus is starting to mess with them right here. And if the owner really wanted to avoid all the fuss, he would have had the common sense to start with those who came first, give them their money, they'd receive it with with happiness, they'd they'd go off, and, and that would have been the end of it. But Jesus had a point to make. Now, it's worth knowing the bigger context here. Look with me back at the end of the previous chapter. It's one verse back, chapter 19 and verse 30. Context for that is is Peter once again opens his mouth just long enough to switch feet. You know what that's like? Well, Jesus sets him straight on the rewards for service. Chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus says, but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. I always thought that applied to potlucks, but apparently it doesn't. But I want you to notice the same words are spoken on the other side of this story. Chapter 20, verse 16. Put your eyes there for a moment. Jesus says again, so the last will be first and the first will be last. Two statements serve as bookends to this parable. It becomes quite obvious as to why the last were paid first. But Jesus once again reverses what is common practice to make his point. And if that isn't bad enough, the greater twist in the story is what happens next. Verse 9, Jesus says, the workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received a denarius. What employer in his right mind would pay the same amount for one hour's work as for 12? And that's exactly what gets under the skin of the guys who worked all day. Verse 10. So when those came who were hired first, they expected, underline, they expected to receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. Again, who does this? Who pays 12-hour workers and one-hour workers the same amount? I mean, if you do this fairness thing where everyone must be treated the same, it should be add up this way. One denarius for one-hour work, 12 denaria for 12 hours work. And the landowner, he stirs up a bit of a scandal because those who had worked in the heat of the sun for 12 hours would see that these guys who didn't work nearly as hard as they did are getting the same pay. And that's the heart of their complaint. And we're about to have some sour grapes in the vineyard. (laughs) Verse 11. When they, the 12-hour workers, received it, follow along, 
they began to grumble against the landowner saying, wait until the union hears about this. <laughs> Not exactly. What did they say? Verse 12. These men who were hired last worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. And it's right here that I think you could all chant along with me, that's not fair. And now for children, they learn that pretty early in life, that one phrase, it's not fair. He got more dessert than me. Why do I have more broccoli than she has? Why do I have to clean my room? That's not fair. As they get older, we tell them to turn off the music we don't want them listening to. When we give them a curfew, when doing a chore gets in the way of what they wanted to do, when we won't let them do what they had their hearts set on doing, and all their friends are doing it, they say, it's not fair. Good thing we grow out of that, right? Now, I mean, we may not say it aloud, but when that person cuts in front of us, or that promotion went to a coworker, or we go to a, a, a high school reunion and see this, well, we thought it would amount to nothing, has it all? Or someone else gets credit for the job we did, or we work harder, longer, and better than everyone else and not get recognized, the cry of the heart is, it's not fair. I mean, as we get older, we still feel it, but we learn not to say it so loudly. So we just kind of mumble, it's not fair, I can't believe I'm treating it. Right? Yeah. Now, by the way, just guys hit this briefly. By the way, this story is not addressing the matter of speaking up against injustices in the world or speaking on behalf of those who are being treated unfairly. It's not addressing that. It's not even addressing unfair treatment leveled at you, per se. There are real injustices in the world. There's a place to lament and cry out against injustice. That's just not the point for this morning. What is the root of this charge of unfairness? Well, John MacArthur nails it. He says, the charge of unfairness was not grounded in a love for justice, but in the selfish assumption that the extra pay they wanted was pay they deserved. Not the real issue. It's all about what we think we deserve. It's like Charlie Brown's little sister Sally in the classic Charlie Brown Christmas special. You may recall that at one point, Sally orders Charlie Brown to write down exactly what she wants him to say in a letter to Santa. And so she has him write down, Dear Santa, and she puts some other things in there. And she goes, Come on, Charlie Brown, I want you to write this down. Dear Santa, I have been extra good this year, so I have a long list of presents that I want. Send as many as possible. If it seems too complicated, make it easy on yourself. Just send money, tens and twenties. <laughs> Well, Charlie Brown, he's appalled by this. He hears this. He despairs over his own sister's greed. And Sally indignantly responds, all I want is what I have coming to me. All I want is my fair share. That's the rub. We all want our fair share. We've got rights, you know. And the number one right we have in this life is the right to have our rights met. So we become irritated, we stomp our feet, 
We pout. Yes, as adults, we pout. We shake our heads when we spy apparent unfairness in life. Why is it that it's more instinctive to grumble than it is to give thanks? Now, at this point in Jesus' story, be honest, who you're identifying with the most? (laughs) See, a problem with this parable is, okay, I gave you one more observation, but I think you're starting to feel it yourself. It has to do, his last, last observation has to do with explanation of actions. And the observation is this. In the bottom line realm of economics and fair compensation, the landowner's actions don't add up. In the bottom line realm of economics and fair compensation, the landowner's actions don't add up. It is in the landowner's explanation of his action, which he owes no one, by the way, do we enter into the realm of grace? Now, it should be obvious by now that the generous, gracious landowner is God. That's why I believe it should be called the parable of the generous landowner. Because the story is owner-centered. It's a story about the owner, about his rights, his nature, his generosity, his grace. And when God speaks grace... We often don't get it. Grace can shock us. Grace can be disturbing. Grace can be hard to understand. It can be hard to swallow at times, especially when others receive it. No, I want them to get justice. I want grace. Justice. And when grace happens in their life, it appears outrageous, appalling, even scandalous, as Philip Yancey says. Let me ask you this question. Is your image of God a mathematical God? If I do this, then this is what should happen? Do you continue to try and put grace into some mathematical equation? Listen, it won't add up. One writer spoke of it this way. He said, God introduces the new math of grace with twists and turns no one expects. Here lies the problem. Our problem with this story, our problem with this story is we consider ourselves to be 12-hour workers. That's our problem with this story. We consider ourselves to be 12-hour workers. Deep down at times, we really think we deserve a little more. That's the genius of this story. Jesus knew we would instinctively root for the wrong side. They grumble. And in response to their grumbling, the landowner will ask three questions that really serve for our lessons this morning. Three questions asked here, and each one reveals something about our hearts and reveals something about God. I think you'll pick up the questions. Landowner says to the 12-hour workers who are grumbling against him, look with me at verse 13. But he answered them, friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Three questions. First question, didn't you agree to work for a denarius? 
Didn't you agree to work for Daenerys? These guys think the landowner is being unfair because he's given as much to the latecomers as the early birds. And we can see their point. They were there first. They worked harder. They worked longer. They worked in the heat of the day. And these slackers worked one hour. They didn't have to work through the noonday sun. They didn't have to put in 12 hours and kill their backs. Listen, it's not about us. If we make the kingdom about us and our rights and what we are owed, we, like these 12-hour workers, will become embittered. And have you noticed? There are a lot of embittered people around. There are a lot of embittered people, believers, in the church. I'm saying this church, church, big picture. Have you met one? I have. I've been one. It isn't pretty. Why are there sour grapes in the church? Did you catch the cause of their grumbling in verse 10? It's wrapped up in one word. They expected, expected to receive more. Expectations. It gives birth to resentments. Expectations, it puts a, a strain on relationships. Expectations, it conceives our disappointments. What are the links of expectation on your chain of disappointments? What expectation never materialized, leaving you frustrated and sour? Who has violated one of your expectations as to how you should be treated? What expectations are putting a strain on your marriage right now? What expectations are putting a strain on your friendships? On even enjoying the delights of service to our Lord? Why is it that it's more instinctive to grumble than it is to give thanks? A spirit of entitlement. Listen, church. A spirit of entitlement will po is poison to your spiritual health. Entitlement is the belief that your privileges are really your rights. On a website forum, as far as I can tell, this is a true story, but on a, on a website forum where people could ask for advice, an unnamed wedding guest revealed she was contacted by the newlyweds to say her gift of a check for $100 wasn't generous enough. Okay. She said the couple who had asked for cash gifts had emailed her to say they were surprised by her contribution and suggested an adjustment. She went on to say this, that the bride and groom told her this in this email. They declared, we were surprised that your contribution didn't seem to match the warmth of your good wishes on our big day. Yeah. They then added, if you want to send any adjustment, it would be thankfully received. Really? Entitlement is at odds with thanksgiving. And our problem with this story is we consider ourselves to be 12-hour workers. Was the landowner unfair to them? Did they not agree to work for a denarius? 
The problem wasn't the owner's mistreatment of them, but in what he graciously gave to others. These 12-hour workers are grumbling about grace. Second question. There's a lesson here for us. Verse 15. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Listen. God is not in debt to anyone. We are the clay, he is the potter. The kingdom operates not according to our labors, but according to God's initiative, his kindness, his generosity, his grace. Now we may give lip service to grace, but deep down, we think we should be getting a little more than we do because of our obedience or our years of schooling and training because our showing up at 6 a.m. to serve. I serve. I give. I help. I, I, I. Not fair, God. Now, we'd never voice this, but in our hearts, it is, God, I have been a pretty good follower. God, I have been a pretty good pastor. I think you owe me a little bit more here. God's grace owes no one anything. Anything. And you want to make everyone around you miserable? Walk around with this chip on your shoulder. So I don't deserve to be treated this way. No one really knows me. No one really respects me. I, I don't deserve this. Do you really want to shake your fist at God and say, God, for once, give me what I deserve? I don't think so. Be unimpressed with yourselves. God is generous. He's good in dispensing his blessing as he sees fit. Don't I have the right to do what I want? Third question, verse 15. He says, are you envious because I am generous? Or some translators say, do you begrudge my generosity? Here's the heart of the matter right here. He's saying, you're upset because I am generous to other people. And the word envious there is really evil eye. Is your eye evil, he's saying, because I am good? Are you envious? Are you jealous? Do you go through your day mumbling, it's not fair? Pastor and speaker Kevin DeYoung uses his eyeglasses, literally his eyeglasses, to speak of the lenses we put on every day whereby we look at the world. We don't just look at the world, we interpret it. And for some of you, he says, it's a set of lenses of fairness that you put on every day. And when you put on the glasses of fairness, you'll always feel you're put in last place when you should be in first and we put on the lenses of fairness, we're constantly looking over everyone else's shoulder. What are they getting? Are they getting more than they deserve? That's not fair. And then we have the blessing police. Yep. The blessing police going around checking how God is blessing someone else. And going, well, that's not fair. What has he done for the kingdom? I never see her jumping in and serving anywhere. And they get to drive around in that car? Why is God blessing them? Here lies the problem. Here's the principle. 
I wouldn't be so unhappy with what I have, except I see others having so much more. I wouldn't be so unhappy with what I have, except I see others having so much more. And we look at another set of kids, and we think, why can't my kids behave that way? Oh, she seems to have it pretty good with with his or her spouse. Why can't my spouse be like him or her? I wouldn't be so unhappy with what I have, except I see others having so much more. Facebook doesn't help here. Oh, how did she get to get tickets to go to that concert? Pfft. Why do they get to go on that wonderful vacation? Why do they get to enjoy all that? I mean, I don't get it. I don't get to do that. Why do they get to? See, social media is a perpetual temptation to jealousy. You look at it and go, wow, they have it good. Why can't my life be like that? Our lenses of fairness. We experience all of life through these lenses of fairness. Do you like to be first? Do you feel the need to always push to the front? Jesus says that's really a good way to end up last. And the reason we're envious and jealous, though doesn't really come from outside of us, but from within us. The problem, church, is in here. Because you see, no matter how successful you are, there's always someone else more successful. If you think you could just get to this certain place in popularity, or in looks, or in income, or in some title, or number of friends, there's always someone else with more. And so often what we see first is what is missing and not what we have. So we grumble. Do you begrudge God's generosity? How about putting on the glasses of grace? Has God been faithful to you? Has God given you what he promised? Did I not promise you a denarius? Aren't I fulfilling that promise? I gave you what I promised. Where's the unfairness? Has God been true to his word to you? Has God been good to you? You have to put on the lenses of grace to see it. Bottom line. As workers in the kingdom of grace, we ought to marvel at God's generosity, not grumble about it. As workers in the kingdom of grace, we ought to marvel at God's generosity, not grumble about it. Don't be among the sour grapes in the vineyard, in the church. Let's get our eyes on the landowner rather than on all his workers. Ken Langley, and I probably told you this before, but it really fits here. Ken Langley tells of a time in which he and his wife were worrying for half an hour that they wouldn't get on this overbooked flight. They were then summoned to the check-in desk where a smiling agent whispered that he was bumping them up to first class. So Ken then tells this story. He says, this is the first and only time we've been so pampered on an airplane. Good food, hot coffee, plenty of elbow room. He said, so my wife and I played this little game, trying to guess who else didn't belong in first class. (laughs) And they said, one man stuck out. He walked around the cabin in his socks, restlessly sampling magazines, playing with but never using the in-flight phones. Twice he sneezed so hard we thought the oxygen mask would drop down. (laughs) And when the attendant 
brought linen tablecloths for our breakfast trays. He tucked his into his collar as a bib. He didn't belong. In the same way, as we look around, we see misfits too. People obviously don't belong. People who, who kind of embarrass us, they, they, they cause us to feel a little superior. But the truth is, we don't belong in God's kingdom any more than they do. God chooses any one of us for work in his vineyard is absolutely amazing. It's all because of his grace, because his kingdom runs on grace. How are you viewing the world? How am I viewing the world? What lenses are you putting on? Fairness lens or grace lens? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace that you extended to us. And we've got to keep coming back to it. Can you easily forget and start to think that we deserve all that? All those blessings because we're just doing it right. And certainly there's connections between living a righteous life and living for you and, and how that life might turn out. But there's twists and turns in that too. It doesn't always add up. And so we thank you for the ways in which you just poured out your grace upon us. And we want to rise and, and just say thank you and give you praise. Not just now, the Sunday before Thanksgiving or on, even on Thanksgiving Day but every day, for you're deserving of that. Speak to us through your word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.